Getting old is neither fun nor glamorous. It is, however, inevitable. On the plus side, eventually you get to die. Every cloud, as they say. Involuntary screaming. People have started staring at you on the street. When did this come about? It's getting harder every day to slog up that hill into town. Would it kill them to put on a measly smile? These days, mind, you're not sure what your own face is doing at any given moment. You'll be sat in the tea room, nobody else about, and you'll think, who's that muttering? And after a moment, you realise it's coming from your own mouth. It catches you off guard. You wonder whatever you could be saying, but listening closely, you only make out a few words. Nasty little rotten cunt. It seems to be aimed at the waitress. She's only 15 or so. It's still going when she brings you your tea. She looks only at the floor, desperate to elude your medusoid gaze. Muttering you could live with is the screaming that's really getting to be a problem. You remember when you were a little girl and still learning how to be proper. It was important never to draw undue attention. If you went into a quiet place, you preserved the quiet. But whenever you found yourself in the library, say, or riding the bus, there was a voice in your head telling you, you could make a noise. You could blow a big fat raspberry. You could yell the house down. And of course you never did. That was part of being proper, suffocating your whims. Now it seems that whatever cork was keeping that urge tamped down has rotted away. You've started screaming at the top of your lungs with no provocation. The first time, you're sat by the fire of an evening, and out of nowhere you come out with this piercing shriek. You've never made such a sound before. It's the sort of thing you'd expect to hear from a woman tied to a stake, not gently warming her toes. It's loud enough that the neighbours knock on the door half a minute later to check on you. You brush the incident from your mind until, a week later, it happens again while you're walking through the park. Then the next day, when you're queuing at the supermarket. Then three times the day after that. You suppose you ought to see somebody about it, so you visit the GP's office. You sit amongst a dozen people in the waiting room. It's a hot, sticky summer's day, and the only sound is the little fan in the corner of the room, which might as well be an electric fire for all the good it's doing. Despite the heat, you're wearing your yellow plastic mac. It's too small, and when you sit down, it constricts around your arms and belly. The heat irritates you. In the reflection of the receptionist's window, you see your face, grey and slick with sweat. Unexpectedly, your expression contorts into that of a rubber fright mask from a fairground ghost train. You scream. What a noise you make. You didn't know you had it in you. The whole room jumps. A few people turn to look at you. After a moment, you say, to no one in specific, Sorry, I can't help it. You live in a cottage at the bottom of town. It's not too near the high street, which you like, 
but recently you've suffered a number of unwanted visitations from the town's more daring children. They've decided that you're a witch. Probably every town has a witch, an old lady who never married or was widowed and never had children, or if she did, they moved far away. Maybe she talks to herself as she walks down the street. Maybe she's just given up smiling. Parents say she's just a lonely old lady, but the infant mind sees right through this. This is exactly what all those fairy stories were preparing them for. Witches eat little boys and girls. They snatch them up in a black sack and fly them on their broomsticks back to their lairs, where they boil them up in their cauldrons. Thus, it becomes a point of pride among the older, uglier children to prove that they aren't scared of the witch. Not one bit. They start by ringing your doorbell and running off before you answer it. It happens every day for a week, always between three and four in the afternoon after school lets out. You always answer, and you never manage to catch them before they're hidden. By the fourth time, you're well and truly wound up, and you stamp on your doorstep and swear. You think you hear them giggling, but you can't be sure. Once they've got you pegged as an easy mark, they are emboldened. When they see you on the street, they chant your name in that taunting cadence, the same two-note tune that your doorbell makes. If ever you turn to look directly at them as they chant, they react as if they've scored a point, cheering and whooping. Sometimes a group of them will parade past your house, calling obscenities. You hear one of them cackle like the Wicked Witch of the West. Is it supposed to be an impression of you? That can't be right. You haven't laughed in years. In your garden you keep chickens. For the eggs, of course, though your appetite isn't what it once was. Half the time you forget to collect the eggs and they sit there in the nest until they've gone bad. Once you forget to feed them, and when you poke your head in the coop the following day you find that the hens have cracked and eaten their own eggs. They're affectionate hens. They let you pick them up and stroke them. They'll peck seed right out of your palm. One day there's a knock at the front door. You answer it. A woman in her thirties with frizzy brown hair and very wide hips. She's got a plastic name tag clipped onto her shirt and a wide smile which doesn't match her eyes. She's from the council, she tells you. Her name's Susie? She knows your name already. How are you today, she asks. The reason she's popped by, she says, is that there have been some complaints about your chickens. They're causing a terrible smell. Nonsense, you tell Susie. Your chickens don't smell. Come and see for yourself. You walk Susie through to the garden. Her nose wrinkles the moment the back door opens. The hens hear you coming and emerge from the coop, gathering at your feet. One of them pecks at Susie's foot, and she hops back in alarm. You walk her to the coop, thoughtfully pointing out to her the sodden, swampish patch in the grass which she mustn't step on or she might lose a shoe. Opening the coop, you mentally concede that it could do with a good mucking out soon, though you don't admit that to Susie. Susie tells you that there is a very strong smell indeed, that you must just be used to it as you smell it every day. The smell is upsetting the parents who walk their children to school on the pathway behind your garden. As she's explaining this, you feel a scream coming on. She's mid-sentence when it comes out. She cuts herself off with her own yelp, and instantly she turns white. She's still trembling five minutes later when you send her off with a basket of fresh eggs.
How long has it been now since your mother died? Twenty years seems too big a number, yet it stands out to you. You have a faint memory of having sat down and done the maths once, and it came to twenty years. How long ago was that? It was her house first. Though you've lived in it your whole life, you were born in it. There were other people in the house early on for your first five years or so. Then it was just you and your mother. You have a picture of the two of you, taken when you were young. She was very beautiful in her day, not like you at all. She had thick, dark hair, big blue eyes, a retrousse nose. Your hair was always thin and lifeless, your eyes muddy. Your nose was okay until you were about twelve, at which point the tip started to droop down below the nostrils, causing a pronounced avian effect. Mother thought you were ugly. She never said as much. She didn't have to. You saw it when she looked at you, how she would bite her lip as if trying to solve a difficult sum. There must be something I can do, you knew she was thinking. She felt your ugliness reflected badly on her. She took it very poorly when her own looks began to fade. Once the skin of her neck started to sag, she stopped going out entirely. But she never stopped fussing over you, making you brush your hair and polish your shoes before she let you leave the house. You tried to keep those habits up after she died, but they didn't stick. It doesn't matter anyway. Since you stopped washing your hair, it stays flat on its own. You're getting very thin. Your yellow plastic mac no longer squeezes you when you sit. You only take it off when you go to bed now. The bottom hem has become stiff with dried chicken dung. A woman calls your name in the street. You don't recognize her. She asks how you're getting on these days and if there's anything she can do to help around the house. She has two children clustered around her middle. You look at the older one, a boy, and he buries his face in her coat. Though you don't recognize his mum, you know the boy for sure. You've seen him with the others, the ones who jeer outside your house. You tell the woman you don't need any help and walk away muttering. It's ever so cold in the house these days. Even with the fire going, you have to get right up to the hearth to feel any warmth. You're not sure if that crackling sound is the fire or your old bones settling. The next time there's a knock at the door, two people are outside, a man and a woman. They both have plastic name tags pinned to their shirts. They're here to check up on you. Can they come in? In the kitchen they open all the cupboards and drawers. Do you mind? You snap, but they go through everything. You don't have any food, they tell you. There's nothing in the cupboard but a torn bag of clumped-up sugar. Have you not been eating? You tell them about the eggs and show them out to the coop. The hens aren't looking healthy. They have big patches with no feathers. In the living room, they notice the hatchet on the floor next to a section where the floorboards have been hacked away at and ripped up. They find what's left of the missing boards in the fireplace, charred and black.
at the top of town is a small medieval castle. Everyone in town calls it the Priory, though it hasn't been called that officially for many years. Its real name is St. Bertha's Care Home. From the plain, clean, comfortably modern bed-sitting room they've moved you into, and which you now suspect to be the room you will die in, you would scarcely know you were in such an ancient and storied building but for the arch-topped lancet windows and the parapeted stone wall around the grounds you can see out of them. The staff, women in their forties and fifties mostly, get you out of bed, help you dress, bring you breakfast on a tray which you eat in the chair in the corner of your room from an overbed table. They offer to help you to the toilet, even to take care of the more intimate end of the process until you inform them you're not so decrepit you can't wipe your own nethers. They make sure you take your pills, even when you insist you've already had them today. You know you've had them, just like you know you've eaten lunch, and yet they still bring you a bowl of soup and insist you've had nothing for hours. There is a communal living area, as characterless and chilly as your own room. Some of the residents spend all day in there, playing draughts, drinking endless cups of tea, slipping in and out of consciousness with no clear preference for either state. You are unable to understand what it is that marks you as having the same needs as these people, most of whom can barely move and have long ago surrendered any sense of independence. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you think of the communal area or the people in it. Once they've experienced a few of your surprise screams, it is made clear that your presence in here will be coolly tolerated at best. You must admit, the Priory's gardens are beautiful. The privet hedges haven't a leaf out of place, and a stately elm proffers shade to a well-mown lawn. Once the staff come to know how mobile you are, and how little you care for their condescension, they allow you to spend as much time as you like out there when the weather's nice. There's a cat who likes to explore the gardens. Whenever it's warm out, you know you'll find her in the grass, snoozing in a beam of sunshine. She's black and white, with a marking on her back like a lowercase letter Y. She is immediately affectionate, nuzzling up against your legs and letting you stroke her. When they serve haddock for lunch, you save yours and take it out for her on a little plastic dish. She eats it greedily, making a funny little growling noise as she does. When she's finished, she lets you pick her up, just like your hens used to. She purrs happily as you carry her indoors and up to your room. You make her a bed in the cupboard of your bedside table. She likes it in there. Once or twice a night you hear the bell on her collar jingle as she shifts around to a new sleeping position. In the daytime, you leave her in your bathroom with the tap gently dripping which she loves to lap at. She does her mess in the sink where you can pick it up with a cluster of tissue and easily flush it down the toilet. For ten wonderful days, the cat is your boon companion. Then, one afternoon, you come in from the garden to find one of the nurses stood in your room a scratch on her arm oozing fresh, wet blood. They had a call from one of the home's neighbours, she tells you. Their cat was missing, and their children were utterly distraught. That was more than a week ago. She makes you bring your cat back down to the garden, then angrily shoes her away. The cat zips off into the bushes. You never see her again. The screams are increasing in frequency. Two or three times a night now you will scream yourself awake. 
The staff are forced to replace your door with a much thicker, heavier one. It renders the room eerily still. You find yourself suddenly aware of the sounds of your own body. Your ears ring. Your tongue makes sticky, wet sounds just sitting in your mouth. Most mornings you don't remember where you are. You wake in a room that is not the one you have slept in your whole life. As you puzzle over this, people you've never seen before let themselves in and act as if they own the place, opening the wardrobe, which, though it's not the wardrobe you know, is full of your own clothes, and pulling things out and holding them up and asking you which ones you feel like wearing. It all goes by at such a speed, and more often than not you end up shouting and swearing, but these people don't even react. They carry on speaking to you in the same clipped, matronly tone. Once you actually take a swipe at one of them, you swing your claws in her face and all she does is duck, then carry on wrestling you into your cardigan. Other residents of St. Bertha's are visited by their families sometimes. One morning you leave the sealed coffin of your room for the garden to hear the birds and feel the breeze, only to find that one of the other old ladies is being obliviously wheedled around by her chinless adult son while her caterwauling grandchildren run riot. You don't believe it. If there was one thing you didn't miss about home, not St. Bertha's home, but real home, it was those brats screeching at you every five minutes. A scream is coming. You feel it bubbling up from the acid of your shrunken stomach. You know that when you scream in the garden, it echoes off the Priory's ancient walls. It's as if the building is screaming with you, each stone a thousand years of petrified agony. You make sure to look directly at the children just as it arrives. You draw it out as long as you can, into a howl, and before you finish, they're both crying. The father's mouth is flopping open and shut, carp-like, in shock. Catching himself, he looks from his mother to you, then back. He stammers, Should I, uh, do you, shall I fetch the... His mother didn't hear you, and doesn't hear the children now. You continue on your circuit of the garden, there's another sound now over the top of the sobbing. After a moment, you realise it's you, cackling away. It gets colder, and no matter how much you protest that you've never minded the cold, the staff refuse to let you into the garden for more than a short walk twice a day. You'll get poorly, they tell you. They keep the home roasting hot all day long now, which only strengthens the soporific effect of the place. Since you no longer have any choice, you spend your days in the communal area like everyone else, and though they try to smile at you and maintain an air of pleasantness, they violently flinch every time you scream. You know you don't fit in. They all smell the same, like lavender and talcum and stewed tea. But when you're around, they flare their nostrils. You overhear a couple of them talking to a nurse one day. Doesn't bathe, of course. Can never convince her. Thought as much. Such greasy hair. Always think I can smell vinegar when she's around. And you think, why does everybody these days have such bloody sensitive noses? You start spending more time in your room, just sat by the window, staring out over the town you've never left. It means nothing to you now. Might as well be anywhere. You're still screaming at night, but lately you find that you're also pissing the bed. It seems that you can no longer stop needing to piss, in fact. From morning to evening and all through the night, you exist in a state of constant piss-wanting. The staff threaten to put you in nappies if the incontinence persists. You scream. It's night. 
Fat raindrops bombard your window. A flash illuminates the room. A few seconds later, there's a rumble of thunder. You kick your way out of the duvet cocoon and get out of bed. The room is unfamiliar to you. You leave the lights off and scuttle around in the gloom. In the wardrobe, you find your yellow mac and you put it on over your hospital-issue cotton nighty. You find your crumbling brown wellies and slip your bare feet into them. Creeping through the castle, you make it downstairs and slip out into the storm. The rain is monstrous, each drop the size of a marrow-fat pea. It pummels the top of your bare head. You think of an enormous spider tapping on your skull. Past the priory walls, your feet know which way to take you. It's all downhill from here. A sewer grate has become clogged with leaves and detritus, and the road between the curb is now a rushing flume. The water's getting into your boots. Another flash brings a thunderclap with almost no delay. You scream. Beneath the pounding rain, you can barely hear yourself. You make it down the hill to the village green. You pass the statue of the 18th century Major General who was born in the town. You mutter something about him being a rotten cunt. Conditions are treacherous, and more than once you narrowly avoid a tumble that could easily have proven fatal. But each step brings you closer to home, and you've been away for long enough. Approaching your cottage, you find that the dipped road out front has flooded completely. You step into the water and wade on. At its deepest point, you're submerged up to your navel. You could plunge your head beneath the surface and vanish. You reach the doorstep. In the pocket of your Mac, you find the key. You let yourself in. In the morning, the staff from St. Bertha's knock on the door. You don't answer. The chickens have been taken away. The coop remains, still in need of mucking out. The living room is as you left it, burnt floorboards in the fireplace and all. Once the last of the storm burns off, the sun comes out. From your window, you see the man who lives next door wade out into the flood with a pointy stick. At its deepest point, he finds the clogged grate and pokes away at it until the water begins to drain. He looks back and sees you. Puzzled, he waves. You draw the curtains. The cupboards are bare, but for sugar. You'd better do a bit of shopping. In your bedroom, you open the drawer in the vanity where you keep your cash and stuff a fistful into the pocket of your Mac. As you make your way up the high street, you notice yourself muttering. People are staring at you. When did this come about? Sometimes you look in Mother's room expecting to find her and are surprised when she's not there, the mattress stripped and the air thick with dust. You always know where you are when you wake up, though. One morning there's a kerfuffle outside your front door. You look through the peephole and see a girl with a bicycle trying with some difficulty to turn around on the pavement. Her back wheel scrapes against your door. You rush to the kitchen and fill a jug with water. When you throw the door open, she's shocked and barely manages to conceal a yelp. Her foot rests on a pedal. Slowly, you pour the jug of water over it. Then you look her in the eyes and smile sweetly. Frightened, she starts to cycle away. After a few feet, her chain seizes up and she and the bike fall flat against the concrete. You cackle. 
When the weather gets warmer, the children come back. They gather across the road from your house, staring one another to ring your doorbell or throw stones at your window. They aren't scared of witches. You watch from behind the curtains as the group selects their agent of mischief. It's a boy, the smallest in the group. You recognise him. They push him from the throng and hide around the corner as he approaches the door, trying to muster the courage to ring the bell. You grab the hatchet next to the fireplace and bring it with you to the front door. The instant he rings the bell, you answer. He sees the hatchet. He screams. You scream. He runs. You chase. <laughs>